The following audio is brought to you by Summerside Community Church in London, Ontario. For more information on Summerside, visit us online at www.summersidechurch.ca. Uh, we were uh, we've been in Edmonton for 12 years other than that nine months that we spent in northern Ontario. I'd been teaching a small Bible college, uh, one of several men who were uh, teaching 30 to 50 students who would take a year after high school or after university, study the Bible, theology. Jan and I would teach love, dating, and marriage because we were the youngest of the four professors there. And then pastoring a church as well, part-time, we helped to start a church in Edmonton. But as uh, my 12th year began, I thought, you know what, I don't think I became president the last couple of years. I don't think I've got a vision for this school. I don't think it can grow any further. The, the Bible colleges had changed around the Canada. They were starting a one year, inviting students to come just for one year, like we were doing only. They started to do as well. And so I thought, you know what, I think I'd like to just focus on pastoring a church. So I told the, uh, the board in November, I will finish in May not having any idea where God might take us. Now, if you've lived in Edmonton or even visited it in the winter, you know that London's winters are really pretty warm uh, compared to Edmonton. I mean, it was not at all unusual back in that day, which is centuries ago. Um, It would get down to minus 20 and 30 and at night minus 40. I mean, we, we went through several times weeks where it got up to minus 20 but then was down a crazy cold. And I'd sorry, I'd translated that. and didn't translate that into Celsius. Anyways, really cold. Plug your car in or it won't start if you leave it out there more than three hours. It was that cold. So there we were. And uh, I've resigned now, not knowing where we're going, but hoping that God would bring some church to me and ask me to come and, and pastor the church. Now, again, if you've had friends in Alberta or lived there any time, you know that Albertans only retire to one place. Where? British Columbia. Okay? British Columbia is warmer. So there are thousands and thousands of Albertans who made their money in Alberta, retire to B.C. That's just very typical. And I had traveled to B.C. a number of times uh, preaching because I was with the Bible school, visiting and telling about the school and preaching in a number of churches in Vancouver, Vancouver Island. I'd led retreats over there over the 12 years. So I was well known in BC, pretty well known. <clears throat> and so thought, Lord, be really nice if after freezing in Edmonton for 12 years, you were to open a door for us to pastor a church in British Columbia. To my delight, only about a month after I told the elders, and it wasn't publicized, we didn't you do that kind of thing in our circles, um, I got a call from a church in North Vancouver. We're looking for a pastor, wondered if you would consider it. I leaped through the telephone and said, of course. Um, so uh, sometime later, I flew in there and loved the city. Of course, I'd been there before, beautiful city. Edmonton is landlocked. Vancouver, you're on the water. I'd love to walk by the water. Um, and so uh, Jan and I began to pray, Lord, is that what you want us to do? And then several weeks later, they we clicked together. And so they asked me to come back for a more serious visit, bring my wife with me. And we actually even did a little house hunting. And uh, then we flew home. And as we prayed and thought about it, I said, Jan, this just isn't the right fit. I'd love to move to Vancouver. But it's not a right fit. What they want in a pastor and what my gifts are just doesn't fit. And so 
Sadly, I called them and said, I'm sorry, we, we don't believe God wants us to come. And I didn't have any other option but God. And to my shock. Now, you have to understand, Jan and I, I Jan grew up in Michigan. I grew up in Ontario. People from this part of the country, when they want to get to warm weather, years ago, before everybody flew somewhere, would drive to Florida. People in Alberta would drive to Arizona. And then as the years went by, they'd start to fly to there. And then, of course, the Caribbean and Mexico, etc. But Jan and I had never been to Florida. We knew nobody in Florida. And one day I get a call from a church in South Florida saying, we're looking for a pastor and your name was given to us. Would you consider coming here? And I knew so little about Florida. So if you're under 35 or 40, this is going to be something you wouldn't understand. I couldn't look up anything in Florida because I didn't have a computer back in those days. And there was no Google. So I thought, and we only had limited encyclopedias, so I had to go to the downtown library and look up this place that's just north of West Palm Beach in Palm Beach Gardens. What's the temperature there? One degree warmer in July than it is in Edmonton in the summertime. God must be calling us to Florida. And actually, he was. He was. And so to our amazement, knowing nobody there... We uh, had to wait several months before we could fly down and, and interview with the church and preach there, etc. To our amazement, we lost Vancouver, but we gained Florida and went there for eight lovely, warm years. Really hot in the summer, but lovely, warm years. We just were trusting God. God, what do you want us to do next? And when you're open to God's direction, it's amazing what he will do. Now, the older you get, If you have been living a life with God, the more you can tell stories, maybe not quite like that, but tell stories about how God has been faithful, how he has provided, how he's protected, how he's directed in your life. And so a song that I've come to really love the last several years, I asked the the worship team if they would sing this for us before I begin now to preach the text. And that is the goodness of God. And and let me just read a couple of the lines to you. All my days I've been held in your hands. Now, for a 15-year-old, that doesn't have a lot of meaning. But at 35, if you've been living life with God, or at 55, or at 85, when you say, all my days I've been held in your hands, that has some power. That has some meaning. Or the chorus goes... All my life you have been faithful. All my life you've been so, so good. When you can only look back on 20 years, that's not much. But when you can look back on decades, as some of you can, like we can, to say, yes, God, as we look back, all my life, you have been faithful. That's why we can trust you till the end. Every Christian can hold on to strong faith in all situations If they're grounded in these two key ingredients, deep knowledge of God's character, his promises, his provision, his direction, as we read about it, as we study it, as we memorize it, as we hear it preached in Scripture. And then secondly, to develop an authentic personal experience of God, his direction, his protection and provision. 
And then if it can be affirmed by Christian friends we know, all the better. We have our experience and their experience. That knowledge of the Word of God and all that we find there and knowledge that's gained by experience that comes only with time, only going through different things in life, makes such a big difference. So now we have a text of three verses. Let's really quickly look at the first two verses. They mention two men, Old Testament characters. It says, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Now this is in the middle of the book of Hebrews that talks about faith and talks about people of faith. And Pastor Mark just last week preached about that amazing time of faith when Abraham is told to offer his son as a sacrifice. But now it's being picked up here and the writer is just saying simply, you know what? When Jacob was dying, he blessed, uh, sorry, when Isaac rather was dying, he blessed Jacob and Esau. Now, why would you do that unless you believed in the future? Son, we're all going to die in a year. We're all going to die in three years. But he blessed his two sons. Why? The writer says, because he believed in the future. He blessed them saying, this is what will happen through Abraham, his father, and Isaac. And now to his sons, Abraham's grandsons. He's saying, God's promised a promised land for Jacob. And for Esau, you will be a nation of people. And so he blessed them. And then in the same way, Jacob blessed Joseph's two sons. Joseph, his favorite son, he blesses his two sons. Actually crossed his hands because he was led to bless them older over here, young, younger, younger here. Or sorry, older here, younger there. Anyways, instead of doing it that way, he blesses them. And he does this looking for the future. Believing that God would someday make a great nation. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob all believe that we believe in the future. And because we believe in the future, we'll bless our sons. So that's what's said in the first two verses. And then he mentions Joseph. God promised Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Interesting that Joseph is only mentioned twice in the rest of the Bible. Maybe he's in a couple of genealogies. But basically, Psalm 105 has about five verses about Joseph. And then Acts chapter 7, when Stephen, who is about to be killed for his faith, speaks about Joseph. He speaks about a number of Old Testament characters there. It's the only time Joseph is mentioned. It's an amazing man, amazing experience. But for some reason, unlike Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, who are mentioned a number of times, Moses a lot of times, Joseph is not. Yet he's an important character because he takes up 13 chapters in Genesis. And from Genesis 37 through 50, except for one chapter, he's the main character. Well, actually, God's the main character. Joseph is the main human that God is working with. And when I preach on this, of course, I'm thinking, if you grew up in a church, you probably heard the story of Joseph when you were five years old, then again when you were seven, and then when you were 10, and then when you were 14. It's a story that comes up over and over when we're teaching children because it's a great story. Joseph sometimes is only known because he had a multicolored coat. 
which may have been multicolored or richly woven or had long sleeves and, and a longer length than others, but he had a unique thing. We know him for much more than that. So, so what we want to do is think about this, but because it's 13 chapters and because people generally refuse to stay still for three hours, I'm not going to preach on that and take you through all the text. What I am going to do is scoot over it pretty quickly. Because many of you are familiar, and if you've never read it, you've got some great reading to do this afternoon or later this week. Read those 13 chapters. It's an amazing story, the story of Joseph. Now, Joseph's family was far from perfect. In fact, there was a strain that ran through it, which was not good. Isaac <clears throat> had two boys, Esau Jacob. Isaac really loved Esau. The Bible tells us this. And his wife, Rebecca, really loved Jacob. That's not very good in a family. If you have two children and you obviously love one, or you obviously love the other, you work as parents always to be careful. But this idea of having a favorite kind of ran through this family. In fact, when Jacob gets married, he has a favorite woman he wants to marry, but he's tricked by the future father-in-law into marrying the sister he didn't want. And when he complains about that, well, then his father-in-law says, well, I'll let you marry her younger sister as well, but we always have the older sister married first. So Jacob winds up with two wives. It was, I guess, two for the price of one. No, it wasn't. Actually, he paid for both of them. But... Uh, his favorite was the younger wife. And he makes that very clear. This is the one he really loves. This is his second wife. So again, what does that do for a family? And then Jacob decides, I have 12 sons, but I've got a favorite. Not only do I have a favorite, but I'll make sure everybody knows he's my favorite by giving him Nikes to wear instead of some no-name sneakers. Well, that's translated. Wearing this lovely, much nicer cloak than any of his ten older brothers have. I mean, Jacob, why would you do that? But he did. And so we read the first part of the story, just a couple of verses, in Genesis chapter 37. Joseph, a young man of 17, just 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Billah and the son of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, he was probably very accurate, but if you were his older brothers, what would you call him? I don't know. There are various terms, you know, you tattletale, fink, whatever, you know, rat, whatever. Anyways, he tells on them. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Israel is another name for Jacob. That's a, that was his prophetic name given to him because of a nation of Israel would come. Because he had been born to him in his old age and also from his favorite wife. We might add that. And he made an ornate robe for him, multicolored, longer, somehow. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated Joseph and could not speak a kind word to him. How'd you like to be the 17-year-old? with ten older brothers in their twenties, and they hate you, and they never speak well, never speak nicely to you. That's the situation. 
the situation. But it gets worse. Because Joseph is given a dream by God. And he can't keep quiet. Should have, but he couldn't. And so he says to his brothers, Hey, guess what? Last night, I had a dream. We were out in the field and we were gathering the wheat together and we were tying up the sheaves. And you know what happened? In my dream, my sheaf stood up and your ten sheaves came around and bowed down to it. What do you think that means? We hate you. And now we hate you more. And then he has a second dream. And if that wasn't bad enough, now he wants to share it with his father as well. And says, guess what I dream? The sun, the moon, and 11 stars, he includes his younger brother as well. And his stepmother, his mother's dead stepmother. You all bow down to me. Amazing. And they hate him more. And the Bible says they are jealous of him. And so, when his dad says to Joseph, those thousands of animals that we've sent off to grace somewhere else. You know, he, when, when, I, I'm sure he had thousands of animals because when he was trying to get back together with his brother who hated him, Jacob was hated by his brother. Uh, it's another story. But he sent over 500 animals ahead of him when he was going back. said, please accept this gift. Here are some donkeys. Here are some camels. Here's some sheep and some goats and some cattle. Over 500 animals he takes from his flocks. So, he must have had thousands. And so, his ten sons are off taking care of these flocks of different uh, herds, flocks, whatever, uh, out there. And so, he says, go check on them for me. And Joseph says, sure. And off he goes wearing his Nike sneakers so they can see him coming. Here he is with his lovely robe. Here he comes. And they see him coming and they say, that kid, he's away from home. He's irritated us with these dreams, thinks he's going to rule over us. We will kill him and we will kill his dreams. And only one of his brothers speaks up, Reuben, who wants to save his life, says, well, instead of killing him, why don't we just throw him into this hole in the ground? A cistern, probably a dried up cistern where they would gather water, but there's no water in it. And so they throw him in there. And then Reuben goes off somewhere. And while Reuben's gone, here comes a caravan. Trekking from somewhere north of Israel and heading down to Egypt with some goods. And one of the brothers, or maybe several of them, said, hey... Let's not commit murder. Let's just sell him as a slave and we'll make money and we'll be rid of him. And they all vote unanimously. Reuben's not there. Maybe Judah wasn't so pleased with it, but that's what they do. And so Joseph is sold as a slave. And those of you who know the story, you remember what they did. They had taken the robe off him because it's worth something. But then they put some blood of a sheep or a goat on it. And they went back to their father to tell him he's lost his son. And they just say, oh, dad, dad, look, look. I think, does this look like Joseph's? And look at the blood on it. They didn't say they had killed him. They didn't. They didn't sell him, didn't tell him. And so for the years to come, they live with this lie 
that they in fact had sold Joseph but tricked their dad into thinking he's dead. Not a really good family relationship. And so Joseph is sold into slavery and he becomes the slave of a man who's called the captain of the guard. And as a slave, he could have just settled down and thought, okay, if I'm stuck like this and God has rejected me, okay, I'll do what I have to do, but no more. But not Joseph. Somehow he has, and we're not told what his faith journey is like and how it is, but he's got enough faith in God that he works hard and he's apparently talented and he's blessed by God. For we read this in chapter 39 about Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. And when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted his care everything he owned. The Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. And when The master saw that the Lord was with him. Sounds like Joseph may have talked about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Joseph is not just a slave in the field or in the household, but he climbs the ladder and now he's, however many slaves Potiphar had, five or ten or fifty, he's now in charge of everybody. And he's doing well. Problem is, he's good looking. And Potiphar's wife, who's not satisfied with her husband for some reason, begins to talk to Joseph when he's in the house and around her. Hey, why don't you go to bed with me? I'd really like to have you in bed with me. And Joseph says to her, no, no. How how could I do that? My master allows me access to everything in the fields, in the house. I can have anything that I want except you. Why would I do that to my master? And more than that, it would be a sin against God. So no, lady, I'm not going to bed with you now or ever. But she keeps at him, keeps at him, keeps at him. And then one day, nobody else is in the house and she grabs a hold of him. Come to bed with me. And he lets her, leaves her holding the robe and he gets out of the house. And now she's so angry. She's been scorned by this young man who will not go to bed with her. I'll get you. And so when her husband comes home, Joseph came after me. Joseph was ready to abuse me and have sex with me. And here's his cloak to show it. We don't know if Potiphar believed her. It just says Potiphar was angry and so put him in jail. Whether he was angry at her believing her story or angry at Joseph, uh, sorry, not believing and, and angry at her or angry at Joseph. We're not told. We're just told he's angry. And so now Joseph, who was doing pretty well as a slave, is now hit the bottom again. He's in prison. But in prison, as with Potiphar, God's with him. And so we go to the text again and we read this as we go quickly through this story. Joseph's master took him, put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. 
showed him kindness, granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Again, twice the text says, the Lord was with him, the Lord was with him. Did Joseph feel like that? I suspect a lot of the time he doesn't. Instead, he's asking, God, where were you? Where were you when I was sold as a slave? And where were you when I was righteous and I pushed the woman away and didn't have sex with her and I get thrown in jail and now I'm here? And God doesn't speak to him, but God is prospering him. God is with him directly. And then after he's been there in the jail and he's become the right-hand man of the warden, two special people come in who've been thrown in jail. One's the cupbearer, the guy who drinks a little bit of everything the Pharaoh's going to have. If it's poisoned, it'll kill him and it won't kill the Pharaoh. He's a cupbearer, very important. And the baker. And apparently Pharaoh had a bad day, got angry at both of them, threw them in jail. And they're in jail there for a while. And one day Joseph sees them and says, you guys are looking really sad today. What's the problem? And they say, ah, we both had dreams, and they seem like they're important dreams, but we don't know what they mean. Joseph said, God interprets dreams. Tell me your dreams, and I'll tell you. And so they tell him a dream, and he says, well, there's good news and there's bad news. Good news, cupbearer, your dream means that in three days, Pharaoh's going to bring you back, and you'll be sitting there at the table with him. You'll be testing his uh, whatever he's going to drink. Make sure it doesn't have poison. You'll be, you'll be there. Bad news. Sorry, Baker, but in three days, Pharaoh's going to execute you. And in three days, that comes true. But before they go, Joseph says to the cupbearer, hey, you're going to be promoted back to where you were. Please remember me. I've been stuck in this jail now for all these years, and I'm innocent. I'm innocent. Never had a trial. Of course, slaves don't get a trial. I'm innocent. Would you talk to Pharaoh and see if you can get me out of here? And the cupbearer says, like any of us would, of course, of course I will. So thankful for your interpretation and immediately forgot. And so again, Joseph thinks, this is my ticket out of prison. Uh, no, it's not. It waits two years. And finally, finally, if you don't know the story, you'll have to read all this. We're going pretty quickly. Finally, Pharaoh has a dream and none of his soothsayers, none of his wise men can interpret it. And the cupbearer suddenly, ta-da, I met a man in prison. He interpreted our two dreams accurately. He might be able to help you. And so Pharaoh brings him in. They clean Joseph up, gets him shaved, everything. Here he comes. The guy who's been a slave and a prisoner is suddenly brought into Pharaoh's court and they ask him, and Pharaoh says, I hear you can interpret dreams. And Pharaoh says, or Joseph says, I can't. I can't. But God will give Pharaoh the answer to his dream. And then he interprets a dream for Pharaoh. And after he interprets a dream for Pharaoh, that there's going to be great, abundant seven years of prosperity, the grain's going to grow like crazy, and then there's going to be seven years of drought. And there'll be famine in the land. And then he stops from interpreting and he becomes the advisor. He has managed a household and he's managed a prison. 
Now suddenly he's offering management for this entire world power of Egypt and says, uh, Pharaoh, here's what you ought to do. You ought to start taxing the people for these seven years. They're going to have surpluses. And so you need to tell them 20% goes to us and we'll store it all up. And by the end of those seven years, there are storage bins all over the place or tents or whatever they store them in. It's overflowing. And then the famine starts. And the famine goes on a year and then a second year. And not only are Egyptians coming to Joseph saying, please, how can we buy some grain? Well, sell me this, sell me that. And the story goes on. But foreigners are coming. And you know the story. One day, one day Joseph looks at the people coming to ask for grain. How long has it been? Do the math. 22 years. Since his brothers sold him into slavery. 22 years he's heard nothing about his family. Nothing about what's happening up there in Canaan. He's become fully ingrained in Egypt society. And he's been promoted. And now for the last nine years he has been the CEO. He's been the prime minister under a king who just says whatever you want to do as prime minister do it. No parliament. You do whatever you think's best. He's been that man for nine years. And now here they are, the guys who hated him, were jealous of him, were going to kill him, and then sold him as a slave. It's an amazing story, and we don't have time to go into what Joseph does to try to test them, to see if they really have changed, whether they are convicted of their sin and they're heard of him. Deals with them several times in different ways without telling them who he is, because they, 22 years later, of Of all the things they might have dreamed of, they certainly haven't dreamed that the guy in charge of all of Egypt would be their brother. And then finally, they're standing in front of Joseph. And Joseph reveals himself. After 22 years, let that sink in. Where were you in 2001? 20, that's a long time. No airplane flights back home. 22 years, he's been totally gone. And now suddenly, he is going to let them know that he's their brother. And so we read this in Scripture. Joseph says, and now do not be distressed. You realize what he could have done. He could say, now you're going to be executed. He had the power to do that. He's next to Pharaoh, and boy, in those days, in that kind of... Uh, non-democracy, off with your heads. Do not worry, do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to present Preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler of all of Egypt. You rascals, you sold me into slavery. But don't be angry because I've forgiven you. I realize now God's in control. And God sent me. Yeah, No, no, no. I said that. God sent me. You meant it for evil. God sent me. One more time in chapter 49, we'll read that. He's saying, no, no, God meant it for good. You may be going through something right now. Maybe physical pain. Maybe a family relationship falling apart. 
maybe finances that are tighter than they've ever been. Whatever it is, if you're in the middle of that, you need the faith that Joseph had. You need the faith to believe that God works through difficult things and uses painful things to help us grow in Him and honor Him in our lives. And so God, if we cooperate with Him, we can get through this with great trust in God because we know the story of Joseph and the story of Abraham and the story of Moses and and we know the story of the New Testament characters and, and we know about God. And so we can trust Him when things are tough and when you don't know what the future is like. I remember when I was... 19 and didn't know what the future was like. I think somehow it's a little bit worse when you are 75 or 80 or 85 and don't know what the future holds. But at any stage of life, to have the faith because you know the Word of God and because you've been living with God day by day. You have the experience of God taking care of you. It's amazing. Then how your faith has been strengthened and remain strengthened. And so God calls us to be people of faith. Back to chapter 11, verse 22. Why does Joseph look forward with faith and confidence? He spoke about the future exodus. He didn't know the exodus with Moses leading the way was 400 years away. But he had confidence. God promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And I believe that promise. God will do what he said. Spoke about the Exodus. Because he was sure of what God was doing. And then he added to that the personal note. I believe in it so much. Okay, you bury the body. But when after a year, a number of nations still do. They have this way in religion. When you clean off my bones and you store them, don't bury them. Keep my bones so you can take them back to the promised land. I want to be there at least where I'm buried. And uh, they did. Exodus tells us that they had his bones. And at the end of the book of Joshua, it says they buried Joseph's bones in the promised land. He was right to trust God. But I wonder if you are strengthening your spirit, your your spiritual faith, because you're walking with God right now. So that when the rough waters come, when the storms come, you know you can trust God. And then a word to those of you who aren't going through difficulty, but are playing it too safe. Playing it safe in that you never do anything unless you feel it will be comfortable. We live in a culture that tends to push us that way. No, no, don't step out of your comfort zone. But God calls us to step out of our comfort zone, to to be willing to do things for him that we wouldn't naturally do. And we follow our Lord who stepped way out of his comfort zone. So there's a passage in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 to 3. It comes right after this chapter of faith, Hebrews 11, that we'll continue to study over the next few weeks. And it says, there's a great crowd of witnesses Therefore, look at all these witnesses in Scripture, and they're telling you you can trust God. And then there's Jesus himself. If you keep your eyes on Jesus, Jesus 
knew the Bible. He studied the Old Testament. Yes, he was God, but he was also fully man. He quotes the Old Testament more than 15 times. He refers to at least 15 Bible characters in the Old Testament. He knew the Old Testament, so he knew the God of the Old Testament. And then in his life, of course, he constantly, better than anybody else has, he obeyed God and walked with God. So that when he comes to the terrible time in the Garden of Gethsemane, with confidence he can say, not my will, but yours be done. I don't want to go to the cross. I know what lies ahead of me in the next 48 hours. I don't want that, but your will be done. He can do that because of his knowledge and his experience. And if you're developing the experience and the knowledge, then you too can go through the worst. And you too can also take a risk. Too many of us, I just as I was meditating on this, I just thought of the number of Christians who live protected, kind of insular lives, who rarely step out, rarely can say, boy, did God ever provide for that when I needed it? Did God ever direct us in a strange way, but we followed him? Did God ever uh, protect us when things could have really gotten worse? Can't say that because they've tried to live a Canadian life. Make sure you invest all this, save all this. Be careful, be careful, be careful. God calls Christians to step out, to risk. I wonder if some of you could take the risk of giving more than you ever have before. You hear the offering taken, and you know, we, a lot of us give monthly or in other ways to the church. But have you ever given generously? Have you ever tested God to say, God, we're going to give twice as much this coming year as we did last year? Average Christian only gives 2 or 3% of their income. Average Israeli gave or 10% at least. Lord, I'm going to just try to see if I can do more for you. I'm going to give more generously. A lot of Christians, oh, that's just not me. You know, I know other people can, but we couldn't. Or what about joining a small group and risking yourself in sharing? Oh, I'm not one to share with anybody. Well, why don't you become one? Why don't you see if God could help you do that? Or invite your co-worker to coffee or to lunch and say, you know, I've noticed that you're having some stress in your life. Could I pray for you? No, that's not me. I could never do that. What do you mean? You mean you don't trust God enough to take a risk? That's what you really mean. No, I couldn't risk giving more. I couldn't risk speaking to someone like that. I want to challenge you. Joseph kind of got pushed into it. He didn't have much choice in uh, becoming a slave and becoming a prisoner. But in both of those, he thrived by trusting God. Let me give you one more illustration and then we'll move into the communion. Just this past week, received uh, an email letter that we receive regularly from friends who are in a Muslim country, 99% Muslim. And uh, I'll call her Fatma. Uh, Fatma... uh, became a believer several years ago in Jesus. And she's been growing and she's not afraid to share her faith, even though it can be, you need to be very careful in this country. So she was telling her friend who's from Canada, she said, guess what happened? I was going to the emergency because I needed to get my ankle checked. I didn't want to have an MRI. I was worried about my ankle. So when I got there, I sat down in the uh, emergency room And I pulled out my phone. I hope you have 
the Bible app on your phone. I was golfing with a guy in Florida that I've gotten to know. He's from New Jersey. And I said, if you don't start reading your Bible every day, you're going to have to pay for the game of golf when we get together next year. So I checked with him when we flew to, when we were down there this year. He said, no, I could lie to you, but I, and I could say I'm too busy. I just haven't. I said, let's get this Bible app on it. Before I knew it, he told me he'd read half the, half the book of Genesis. So, so Bible app, if you haven't got that, get that so you can read it uh, when you drive. No, not when you're driving. But anyway, so where was I? Um, Fatma is sitting there and she's, Scott, he, she knows to do it. She goes to Isaiah 41, verse 6, I think it is. And it's talking about the strength of the Lord and how the Lord is with you. And she's praying through this. But there's an elderly woman who stumbles into emergency, obviously in real pain, and plops down right beside Fatma. And Fatma feels God nudge her to pray for this woman. And so this three-year-old in the faith believer turns to this woman and says, I see you're in a lot of pain. She said, yeah, I've got a slip disc and this pain's shooting down my leg. I'm really in agony. Fatma says, could I pray for you? Sure. So she prays for this Muslim woman and prays over her. She said, I've just been, I think, as I understand it, she says, I've been praying through this for myself. Let me just pray this for you too. And so she prays over this verse to this woman. And then she says, you know, I prayed in Jesus' name. Let me just tell you how I've come to know Jesus and and how it's changing my life. And as she's talking to this woman, the woman says, stop. Fatma stops and she says, what do you have in you? When you started to talk to me after praying, my pain disappeared. What do you have in you? I want that. And what is that book you've been reading on your telephone? My daughter and I need to read that. So by taking the risk, these are two Muslim women who started to read the Bible just because Fatma said, can I pray for you? And I see that and I think, man, I have missed opportunities like that because I was embarrassed or think I'm going to offend and... And I'm just with you. We need to take more risks because we trust in him. And with that, we need to go to communion. We need to go to communion because this symbolizes why we can trust God more than anything else. God so loved the world that he gave. Jesus loved us so much that he was willing to die for us. And so we are about to take the bread and the cup because of Jesus. And because this is the center of our faith, and if you are depending not on your good works, but depending on Jesus for salvation, not that you're going to be good enough to get to heaven, but because Jesus was perfect and died on behalf of our sins, if you've trusted him as your Savior, then you are welcome to participate in this. And those who are serving, please come forward right now. And we will distribute the bread first, and then the cup. And as we distribute this, We will pray together afterwards, so please take this right away. Thank you. The preacher's been a little bit long today, so we need to move a little faster here. Not you, someone else. Fourth one coming? Okay, yes. And uh, would you take time to remember? Go ahead and distribute those. I've been talking about remembering. Remembering what's in the Old Testament. Remembering what's in the New Testament. Remembering your experiences. Remember so that you'll be strong enough to get through anything. 
But at this point, we are remembering the focal point of Scripture. We are remembering the death of Christ for us. And so as you hold that little piece of cracker there, would you remember? Jesus said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you just eat it like a ritual, it does no good. It's not worth anything. But if you are eating it with that faith of remembering, Jesus, this is your body given for me. You die for me. Every time we take communion, we need to make sure we are really remembering. And so let me give thanks for the bread. And then we will eat together as soon as it comes back up front here. Thank <laughs> you.